video this morning due to technical difficulties. I'll leave it to your own mind to wonder if I sabotaged it on purpose so I could do my job again. But uh, uh, we are really glad to see each and every one of you here this morning and worship the Lord with you together. Uh, if you would take a, out your worship folder real quick, inside this worship folder you'll find all sorts of uh, great information about what's going on in the church, but you'll also find this little checking card. And if you would, it would be a really big blessing to us if you'd fill that out real quick. Um, at the end of the service, you can drop it in the tables that are at either entrance. There's these little white tables and a slot in the side. You can also fill it out on your phone via our church app, which you can download for free, and it's pretty handy-dandy. Um, quick way to do that. 
Uh, on the back of the checking card, there's also a place to put prayer requests. So we really love to pray for you, with you, alongside you, and also praise the Lord together with you. So if you have prayers to share with us or even praises, please do that. And if you've been sharing prayers with us, uh, let us know how the Lord's been answering those and how we can continue to pray alongside with you. It is a pr- pleasure and a privilege to do so. If you're visiting with us, we want to extend a special welcome to you, whether it's just been today or a couple weeks or a couple months. We're really glad that you're here. If you haven't already, I'd encourage you to check out our welcome desk just outside these double doors, and there you'll meet some people who can tell you more information about the church, give you some more information, and if you haven't gotten one already, give you a gift that just is our way of saying thanks for being here and that we love you. Uh, we have a couple of things coming up uh, at the end of this service, right at the end of the service, in the chapel, so down the hallway. Uh, we will have a, a Q&A time with the elders, so if you were here for the congregational meeting earlier, um, or if you missed it, uh, it would be a good time for you to come and just hear from the elders and ask some questions about uh, this uh, ongoing situation with uh, uh, the Souter family and uh, just to uh, be able to hear the straight from the elders' mouths how we can help shepherd you through this process. Uh, We also have an opportunity, a really neat opportunity, to support believers all over the world right now. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul spoke to the Corinthian church through his letter about taking up an offering for the suffering saints in Jerusalem. And we know that uh, Paul carried that offering back with him on his final missionary trip to Jerusalem. And so we have a similar opportunity to bless saints across the, the, the globe um, you guys are familiar with Dustin and Becca King, who are our SENT Global Outreach Partners. They serve in Loja, Ecuador, but also in the rural area of Suro. Now, there's a church there in Suro that recently experienced a landslide, and it did some damage to their facilities. And so we have an opportunity to take up an offering to help them uh, repair that damage from that natural calamity. So there are these big boxes at either entrance on the tables where you can drop in an offering. Um, You can also do it uh, online over the church app if you'd like. And another opportunity to serve is uh, uh, for the folks, uh, fellow believers in Syria and Turkey. So many of you are well aware of the devastation that has occurred there uh, through a series of earthquakes. I think the uh, death toll is a little above 44,000 right now. So that's just a really tragic um, and awful thing that's gone on over there. Men, women, and children suffering. What an opportunity we have to shine the light of the gospel in the midst of great darkness by sending some support over there. So highly encourage you to to think about and consider giving and uh, again, Uh, those boxes at the back, and you can do it online as well. So, tremendous opportunity. Uh, Before we continue on in singing, would you please bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Father, we want to, this morning, we want to heed the command that we just heard from Christine as she read Psalm 95. We are called, we are commanded, we are exhorted by Scripture to sing and to proclaim your wonders and your goodness. And so, Father, I pray that uh, you would help us to do that. Help us to be submissive. Help us to obey, uh, no matter how we're feeling, whether we're tired or whether we're struggling, uh, no matter how we, whether we feel happy or not, that we would just still submit and surrender our souls to you as an act of worship and to sing, not just to you, but even to one another, the truths of Scripture in song. 
And I pray that as we do that, our emotions would follow, Lord. It not necessarily always doesn't always have to be bubbly, we know that, and joyful, but that we would just be resolutely comforted as we rest in your promises, but also that we would just be confident knowing that we are submitting and obeying to you by giving you the glory that you are due. I pray, Lord, that you would, though, fill our worship with joy as we think about the great cost that was paid to save us from our sins. That should cause joy in our hearts no matter what we're going through. And I pray that that would be true in each and every one of our hearts this morning. Continue to bless us and grow our church. Cause us to be holy. Purify us as we continue to sit under the preaching and teaching of your word. Help us to be hearers and doers of your word this morning. We ask for your blessing over this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one scripture uh, that I've been kind of thinking about a lot over the past couple months is found in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asked his disciples a question that every single person who has ever existed has have to answer. He says, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And what I find so neat about this passage, I could do a sermon on it, but I won't, but there's just so many really comforting uh, truths in it. The first one is that when we can say in our hearts and confess with our lips that Jesus is the, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in your life, that he has revealed that to you and that you believe it and submit to it. So praise the Lord if that is you this morning. The other thing is, is that that confession is what Jesus builds his church upon. The rock of the church is Christ. He is the the cornerstone. He is our foundation. And it is he who builds the church. Jesus is the builder. And it says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Oftentimes I've heard that verse interpreted as a defensive statement where the the gates of hell are attacking the church, but they won't win. No, it's the other way around. It's an offensive statement. The kingdom of God is moving forward because Jesus is building and the gates of hell cannot stop it. It's a very different reality. And I like it that way much better. So with that in mind, let us stand upon the bedrock of our salvation. Let us stand together and let us praise the Lord.
result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. By grace alone we have been saved. All that we are has come from you. Hearts that were once by sin and
Christ he lives, Christ he lives, and what reward will heaven bring, everlasting with There we will rise to meet the Lord, then sin and death will be destroyed, and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours. Newcastle, good to see you this morning. Grateful for a beautiful February morning. Um, a lot of Februaries, we don't get to see a lot of sun. And so I was grateful this morning. God woke us up with the sun. Uh, we have so many things to be thankful for. I'm grateful to be able to share it with you, the church family here. So I'm going to dismiss now the children's church. So this is ages three to kindergarten, if you have any that age. I have them go upstairs, and we have some teachers waiting for them. Teach the, the gospel to them in something a little more age-appropriate. Fix this while they leave. Maybe. All right. Grateful that we can pray to our God. So if you would, bow with me this morning. Let's pray. Father, your word says in Psalm 112, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He's gracious, merciful, and righteous. Is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He'll be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He's distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Father, I pray that you'd make us men and women like this, who see who you are, that you are a God who holds all things in your hand. You're above all of it, everything in this world. And we're here. Father, we know our own frailties realize that there's nothing we can do of ourselves and we know that we are loved 
that you've looked down and chosen us to do your work here. Help us to be upright, to not be moved, to not be afraid, to be strong, realizing that you will do your work and that you've chosen to do it through us. So thankful for that. So you ask us to bring our needs to you. And so we do this morning. We know we have medical situations always going on, some recoveries, some treatments, some diagnoses. We realize that our, our bodies are frail. And so we have sickness. Father, I pray for healing where you will give it. I restore our loved ones to health that they can serve you. Uh, but even if you don't, I pray, help them to serve you. You, you provide the strength for us to do your work, uh, whether we are healthy or whether we're not. And so we pray for that. I pray for comfort for those who grieve. I know there's lost loved ones this week. Pray that you'd help them to grieve and hope. It is okay to grieve. We miss, we miss those who are gone. It's the nature of this world. But the gospel gives us hope. So I pray that we'd be a people of hope. Pray for courage and perseverance for Kevin and Jody and their family this challenging time. Father, we love them. Pray for your care for them as you work out your will in their lives. Thankful for uh, your blessing on our congregational meeting here. Pray yet for the, the question and answer later that you would be strong in it. Father, we, we desire to do what you want. Give us the strength to do that. I pray for Pastor Josh as he teaches us from Philippians what a timely message it is for today. I pray for our partner churches, Bethany Baptist. Father, we are so grateful for them. Pastor Rich has been set, made such an impact on, on many of us here, uh, even personally. We love that church. Pray that you would bless them as they worship today, prosper their ministry in, in Peoria. It's a place that needs the gospel. Pray that you'd make them strong, make them effective in their witness. Pray for the elders there as they shepherd, that you'd sustain their leadership as they lead that, that flock to do your work there. Our go partner today is Amanda King. So thankful for her. She's a great witness to all of us of, of perseverance and doing your work uh, in a hard place. She enjoyed a week of rest here recently. Father, we're so grateful for rest. You, you have chosen to provide it even we're here on a Sunday that you've set aside for rest. And so I'm thankful for Amanda that you're able to, to sustain her and build her up with that. Some prayer requests, pray for their women's Bible study, for ladies to make decisions to follow Jesus. I pray that you would give Amanda courage to see that the places where to, to press in and to uh, ask questions and to encourage, but we know that you're the one who changes hearts. So I do pray that you would change hearts uh, in those women. A prayer for a church that started its first uh, outreach to kids. Um, we're so grateful for the children here. I'm sure that they are there also. Uh, what, a, what a mission field that is. We know that our kids are sinners like we are, and they need the gospel. And so I pray for the success of that, that even in these young people, that you can turn their hearts to see their need for the gospel. And so we pray for Amanda, that she will uh, steward her call there 
in Ecuador. There are many, many things to do, always more work than can be done. And so help her to be wise, give her strength, give her perseverance to see the places to get involved in the places where she has to pass. We know you're working there and pray that you'd continue to do your work. So we thank you, Father. We are, even as we list these needs, we're a needy people. There's, we can't do any of this without you. And so we lay our lives, we lay our services today, even this church before you. We ask for you to bless it, realizing we can't do anything uh, without your care of it. So we look forward to our service now this afternoon. Ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you, many of you probably know, when you share your testimony uh, about salvation, it shouldn't be about you, but about Christ. And I've had the privilege of getting to help a lot of people think through sharing their testimony and, and thinking about how to biblically describe that. And there's a couple of passages I like to go to, Ephesians 2 and Titus 3, because they have biblical language that describes conversion. And it always breaks down into three nice chunks. Who I was before Christ... What did Christ do, and who am I after Christ? So those three things, should, all those are the three elements that always be in a gospel presentation or a testimony. And if you, uh, you know, if you like singing more than talking, then this song we're about to sing is a sung testimony, and it should be true of every single believer. It's the common denominator we all have, that we were all once dead in our sins, but Christ made us alive together to do good works for his glory. So would you please stand and let us sing this together. I once was lost in darkest night Yet thought I knew the way The sin that promised joy and life Had led me to I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I strength to fall 
Good morning, church. It's good to be here today. If you're wondering about the sports coat, uh, they'd always give me a hard time in Tennessee about not ironing my shirts. So I got a sports coat. So you can feel free to follow me for other time-saving tips. How many of you are here today for good news? Anybody here? Good, me too. Today I want to proclaim to you the glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm glad you're here today. Our text this morning is going to be in Philippians, of course, Philippians 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 18. So if you need a Bible, just feel free to raise your hand and one of our helpful ushers will be glad to give you one. So while you're turning there to Philippians 1, 12 to 18, uh, just just take a minute to, to think back on some things. So thankful for Pastor Phil's message last Sunday about, about that love uh, that God has for us and uh, Paul's prayer for the Philippians there. Um, today what we're going to see is Paul is moving from the introduction of the letter into the body of the letter. So he, he changes course a little bit here. Uh, think back to COVID. Remember those days of COVID when everything was shut down and we were really bored at home and trying to come up with all kinds of things to do to fill the time? Uh, I know for our family, we had a lot of fun with uh, photos using different lenses and things like that to, to play around with photos. So one of my favorites, of course, was, um, uh, what, what was his name? Uh, he, Bernie, Bernie Sanders. So remember Bernie and the, and the coat and the scowl? Uh, Bernie laughs about that picture, so it's okay, right? We had a lot of fun with that one. Uh, but we, we did some things with filters too. And you know, you'd, you'd have a picture and you'd put a different filter on it. And it was amazing um, when I'd see somebody's picture like, in their social media, and then you'd see them in person, it was, whoa, is that the same person? <laughs> a filter does a pretty good job. Like, it, it makes people look amazing, doesn't it? Um, so, yeah, had a lot of fun, lot of fun with that one. But t- today's point is this, that God wants us to have the right filter, the right lens as we look at our suffering and other people there. So, if you have your Bibles, if you're there now in Philippians, please stand for the reading of God's Word, and let's see this right filter, this right lens that God would have us to put on today. So, 12 to 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We're thankful for the proclamation of the gospel. And so today, Father, I pray that the, li- that, that the gospel can advance through the lives of each and every person in this room, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of hard people in their lives, Lord, that you will display your power to advance the gospel. Please give us the right set of lenses through which to view uh, our circumstances and others. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So in many ways... Ian and Larissa seem like the perfect couple. They met in college in 2005. 
Uh, great, great Christian people, seemed to have the same mission. Everything was going very well. Uh, they, they were engaged after about 10 months and had, had this marriage, this wedding in their mind. So they were headed there and it just seemed like a great fit. Well, all of that changed one September day as Ian was in a car and he was driving uh, and he was involved in a, a very bad wreck and it left him with a traumatic brain injury, really changing a lot of his personality and a lot of things about him. And so Larissa was, was left in a hard spot. She's engaged to be married to him. He's almost a, a very different person than, than the man she knew and she knew that things would never be the same. And she had these voices really speaking into her life saying, uh, come on, Larissa, you really don't want this for your life. You deserve better than that. It's going to be really, really hard. You, you should be happy. Just end it right now, move on to somebody else, and let all your dreams come true. But she chose not to. She chose to marry him, and, and she, said, she said this. So, I mean, instead of being married when they were young, healthy, and happy, they were married when they were sick, disabled, and grieving. And Larissa said, marrying Ian meant that I was signing on to, a, to things that I don't think I would have ever chosen for myself. Working my whole life, having a husband who can't be left alone, managing his caregivers, remembering to get the oil changed, advocating for medical care, balancing checkbooks, and so on. The practical costs felt huge to say nothing of the spiritual and emotional battles that I would face. What if today that thing you're afraid of the most happened to you? What if that nightmare came to pass? What would happen to your joy? Would it burst like a pinata on a football field? What about your faith? Would you lose heart? Would your joy slip away? Would you drift away from Jesus like a balloon slipping out of a four-year-old's hand? When good things happen, we tend to interpret life as being very good. And then when bad things happen, we, we tend to interpret life by, by, by the way that life is bad now. But what if there were another way? What if we didn't have to use those lenses, those filters to interpret our circumstances in other people? Would that be good? I believe that that's what God would have us to do. He's got another interpretation, another filter that he wants us to use. So the point that we're going to see from our text today is this. Obstacles such as suffering and opponents, are really opportunities for God to advance the gospel. I'll say that again. Obstacles, such as suffering and, oppo and opponents, are really opportunities for God to advance the gospel. So a different set of lenses. So in the case of Larissa, she knew that God had a different perspective. She knew that, that God had a greater purpose for her marriage than the one that she would have picked. A, a greater purpose than an easy life. Even though she didn't know exactly what that purpose was, she knew that she could trust God in it. She knew that she could have a different perspective on her suffering and circumstances. I wonder how many of you are here today really facing a life that you didn't expect. Perhaps it's a child with life-changing disabilities. Maybe it's health problems that leave you unable to function. You could be here today sighing from singleness, moaning from miscarriages, groaning from grief, or devoured by disappointments. In any case, you're facing the dilemma of how to face your joy and struggles with a God-centered perspective and to maintain joy in the midst of that. So Paul and the Philippians really face the same battles that we do. Who is God? What is he doing in all of this? How will I interpret life in the way that God would want me to? How will I respond in the way that God wants me to? So Paul places this section in the letter to encourage the Philippians and that there is a right way to view these things that happen to us 
and a right way for them to understand what he is experiencing and also what they are experiencing as well. So my hope today for you is this, that you come away viewing your suffering and opponents with a God lens. In other words, you'll see the difficulties that you face not as an obstacle that stands in the way of true happiness, but rather a God-given opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. You ready for this? Anyone ready? Okay, let's dive into verse 12 here. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Okay, so Paul wants them to know that the things that they are facing and facing to him are really, op- are really God's opportunities to advance the gospel. So our first point is this. We should view suffering and hardship as gospel advancing opportunities. That's the lens we want to look at things. We should view suffering and hardship as gospel advancing opportunities. So we've, I've broken the text up into two points. Verses 12 to 14 is the first point. And then 15 to 18 is the second point. So as you notice, Paul doesn't begin this section focused on himself. He's not starting off saying, oh, Philippians, what a terrible mess I'm in. Let me tell you all about it. His emphasis is on the advancement of the gospel. Why? Well, because this gospel focus will challenge the Philippians to put the advancement of the gospel in their own lives ahead of their own suffering It will provide for them the right lens to use through which to view everything. So why is Paul concerned so much about the advancement of the gospel? Well, Paul senses that selfish ambition is creeping into the church here in Philippi. And the antidote to selfish ambition is putting the advancement of the gospel, the advancement of God's plans and agenda above our own. And I think this is a good question to ask ourselves as we begin. Whose agenda and plans really come first for us? Are we more concerned with what happens to ourselves or what we should think uh, about ourselves more than the advancement of the gospel? So is it about our plans and our agenda or is it about the advancement of the gospel? So Paul begins verse 12 by telling them he wants them to know, to know. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, not to guess, not to feel, not to imagine, but to know. So I want to be very clear on the route I'm taking in this message here. If I were to ask you, if I were to corner you after the service and say, what did you, what did you learn? What, what, what do you know now? I'd be very disappointed if you said, well, I know that I'm supposed to have a more positive attitude. I know I'm supposed to be less negative. Really? You see, it's possible to present the message today and really just make the point that we should be more positive. Suck it up, buttercup. If life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Well, well, listen, you don't need Jesus for any of that. You don't. You don't need God's grace for any of that, just to have a more positive outlook on things. There's plenty of motivational speakers who can try to encourage you in that way, just see things more positively. So that's not the point right here. The point is that we need the grace of Jesus. Well, wouldn't it have been nice if, if Paul had, had done that? Wouldn't it have been nice if Paul had pointed us to the grace of Jesus for what we're facing and to be able to respond in faith? Well, wait, what does he say in 2.13? Remind us there, Paul, that it's God who works in us, both to work and to will for his good pleasure. And Paul, what did you say in 4.13? That it's through Christ who strengthens us that we can endure suffering? Okay. So Paul clearly does point us to the grace of Jesus Christ. And again, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ in your life, you can't see suffering and hardship in other people from the perspective that God wants. 
So I'm not here today to give you some silly slogan about, about making lemonade out of lemons or anything like that or to suck it up, buttercup. What I want you to know today is that God is advancing the gospel even through your suffering and opponents and that you can have joy as he does this. So back to verse 12, Paul wants us to know, to know. So God wants us to think rightly about himself, ourselves, and our circumstances and our own difficulties, to think rightly about those things. Paul recognizes the reality that we face. We often interpret God, ourselves, and our circumstances in the wrong ways. He wants the Philippians, as well as us, to to have certainty and truth in the ways that we view God, ourselves, and our circumstances. So I believe that, I think in week one, I had mentioned that one of Paul's aims in this letter is to correct stinking thinking. The Philippians had the wrong mindset in many cases, one that was set on the flesh instead of on Christ, one set on earthly things instead of heavenly things. And so Paul wants to correct this. As the Philippians are looking at Paul, they're trying to make sense out of the place that he is in. He is in prison for the sake of the gospel, and they're trying to understand that, and they're trying to understand their own circumstances. They're facing a lot of pressure. How how do we make sense with that? How do we come away with the right conclusions? That's what Paul is addressing. And it's the goodness, the wisdom, and the power of God that are some of the first things we tend to doubt when trouble hits. Many people believe that a good God would do anything he could to protect his children from any kind of harm. What kind of parent, they say, would allow difficulties and hard things to come into the lives of their children? And it'd be very easy for us to interpret the things that happen to us in life, like the things that Paul experienced, as coming from a God who really isn't that good, who really isn't that loving, and who really isn't that powerful. It would be easy to conclude that a good God would never allow, would never bring such things into the lives of his children. But that's not what we see in the life of Paul. In fact, he mentions that his life of serving a good God has brought many things like this. He says that in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, five times, five times, mind you, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one, 39. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and if that wasn't enough, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Oh, and by the way, apart from these things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. Now, if all those things had happened to you, what would you conclude about God? We'll be very easy to conclude that God is not good and loving, wouldn't it? And the version of Christianity that is very popular in the marketplace has little room for a God who brings such difficulty into the lives of his children. So Paul wants the Philippians to know, to know God rightly in light of their suffering. He's not an unloving God who doesn't care about his children. Because God does care about his children, he wants to remove anything from them that would hinder them from seeking satisfaction in him alone. God, in his kindness, squeezes out our idols. He squeezes out anything that would, that would contaminate us, anything that would separate us from him. So don't just know about God, know God. Know that God has promised to bring to completion his work in you. Know that 
In Jesus, there is encouragement, there is comfort, there is love, there is affection and, and, and sympathy. Know that one day, every power that opposes itself to God will bow before him. Know that you can count everything as loss because of the, of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. Know that the peace of God can guard your hearts and minds through anything you face. Know that God can supply all the grace that you need to face your suffering well. So God not only wants us to know his goodness, his love, and his wisdom, and his power, but also to have the right view of ourselves. Nothing in Philippians indicates that Paul viewed himself as a victim. Do you see that? So Paul does not deny his suffering. He's not saying, uh, he's not pretending like it never happens to him, but he's not describing himself through the framework of a victim. It's a very common mentality in life for, for people who have experienced difficult things to identify themselves as a victim. Just imagine for a moment if Paul would have done this. He would have said something like this. I want you to know, everyone, how unfair things really are. See, I've given up. I've served God with my whole life. And look what I get in return for this. Whipped and beaten and shipwrecked. And now I'm thrown in this stinking prison with terrible food. Excuse me while I go back to my cell and pout for a while. But that's not what we see, is it? Not at all. He doesn't view himself as a victim. So because Paul has the right perspective and thinking on God himself and his circumstances, he's able to have hope and rejoice. Where are you at today? Where are you at in all this? I wonder if some of you are here knowing that God is good, powerful, and wise, but really fighting that feeling, that, that interpretation of those things that are happening to you, struggling to have the right perspective on that, being led by your feelings, maybe feeling as if God were not good, wise, and powerful, knowing intellectually, but not practically living out the reality that God is using your troubles in your life as an opportunity to advance the gospel. Well, the truth is, God is able to advance the gospel even through your most difficult circumstances. That's right. God is able to advance the gospel even through your most difficult circumstances. Notice what Paul says. He says here, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul says that what has happened to him has really served to advance the gospel. This term for advancing the gospel is, is a military term. It's, it's the imagery of an unstoppable military advance. The irony can't be missed. So the Romans, the conquerors, the ones who have conquered everybody, believe that they have now succeeded. They, they, they believe that they've stopped the gospel. We've got Paul, the one who was preaching about this Jew that we killed, by the way. We've shut him up and put him in prison. How do you like that, Paul? And the message is this. You haven't stopped the gospel. The gospel is advancing no matter what you're doing here. That is the power of God's work. So the Philippians were definitely not expecting this kind of attitude of Paul. They're very worried about him in prison. Is he going to be okay? Is he going to make it? Will he lose heart? What's going to happen right here? But suffering, as you know, really has a way of making us look inward to ourselves. The focus tends to be on us, but that is not the way Paul was approaching it. Paul is looking up to God 
and out as he sees the way that God is using his suffering and circumstances, even in the lives of other people. The gospel is, ad- is advancing. Now, I'm sure the Philippians were very puzzled when they heard that. What do, what do you mean, Paul? The, the gospel is advancing? Like, like how could that happen? What's, what's that even look like here? How can obstacles such as suffering be opportunities for the gospel to advance? So Paul then provides more explanation what he means by that. His suffering, his chains have led to the whole imperial guard hearing about Paul's situation. They have heard that Paul is no ordinary prisoner. Now, what I don't mean is that Paul is some kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's planning this massive jailbreak. That's, that's not what I mean by he's no ordinary prisoner. No, he's a very ordinary person, but his situation is not very ordinary. He's not in jail. He's not in chains because of some crime such as murder uh, or, you know, whatever the case like that, some, some very severe crime like that. He's in, he's in chains because of the crime of proclaiming Jesus Christ, the crime of proclaiming the good news that God reconciles sinners through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Paul's suffering is a megaphone to the watching world of the good news of God, good news that God has brought salvation through a crucified servant Messiah and is advancing this good news, even though political and spiritual opponents stand against it. I wonder if any of you need this reminder today, that you're suffering and that what is happening to you is a demonstration to the watching world of God's power to advance the gospel. Nothing, nothing, including your, su- including your suffering and other people can stop the God's gospel. Now, This statement at the end of verse 13, where Paul says, my imprisonment is for Christ, can also be translated in Christ. So just as Jesus suffered to advance God's redemptive plan, just as Jesus' suffering was necessary for God's redemptive plan to advance, so Paul's suffering is necessary. You see, in prison, Paul has the opportunity to explain to many people around him, including the whole imperial guard, the reasons for his imprisonment. And in explaining to show them how God was in the world, how God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, 2 Corinthians 5.19. In other words, Paul is in prison because of his ministry of reconciliation. But that's not the only reason why Paul was in jail, because of his gospel proclamation. Paul's imprisonment is necessary for him to fulfill his purpose, for him to fulfill God's purpose of advancing the gospel. Have you ever thought about your own suffering in that way? Have you considered that perhaps it's necessary for you to suffer, not just because you happen to be a Christian, but because that's God's ordained way of advancing the gospel? So with Paul, again, he was in jail because he was a Christian, yes, but even more than that, He was in jail because his imprisonment was the means by which God would advance the gospel to the world. Now, we like to be selfish in our suffering. Lord, couldn't the gospel just advance with suffering in someone else's life? Couldn't it it just advance in some other way, like not including my own suffering? Like, what about his or what about hers? Like, pick somebody else, Lord, not me. Now, if we take that question, though, back to Christ's suffering, I think we have the answer. So God could not bring reconciliation if Jesus did not suffer. 
And if Jesus did not have a way out, then why do we think that we should? Now, Paul's claim here is astounding. He's, he's preached the gospel. He's shared with the whole imperial guard. This is the elite forces of Caesar. It would have been nine to 10,000 men. Yet Paul shows no fear. He proclaims the gospel right in the heart of the enemy's land to the very same people who have killed the man he is proclaiming. Think of the irony of this. Yet he's prepared to pay the price of death for doing this. And yet many of us are so afraid to share the gospel because somebody might get offended, somebody might not like us so much, or we might lose some kind of position at work because of it. How could Paul be this bold to proclaim the gospel right in the heart of enemy territory by God's grace? How can you and I be so bold to proclaim the gospel to our neighbors, friends, and coworkers by God's grace? So not only do people in the Roman guard hear about the gospel through Paul's imprisonment, but his imprisonment actually motivates other people in gospel proclamation. It motivates other people. You see, God's advancement of the gospel does not depend on you alone. Thank the Lord for that, right? It doesn't depend on us alone. Well, what happens when Paul gets thrown in jail? Does it shut everything down? I mean, is God, God like saying, okay, I don't know what to do now. I, I better figure something else out. No, not at all. We might think that other people would be a little less willing to step up if they knew what are, what's the likely outcome of you doing the same thing that he did. I mean, they weren't stupid, right? If they saw that Paul was put in jail for doing this and they do the same thing, what do they think is gonna happen to them? Probably the same thing, right? It would have been a lot easier for them to come up with some other things. I mean, at, at this point in time, we're about to head into this place where Nero, the emperor, really goes off his rocker. He's gonna burn most of Rome down and then throw the blame on the Christians around him. There's a lot of trouble coming for the Christians here. And it would have been very easy for them to say, you know what, let's just take that slogan, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Let's just not say anything, right? We'll just live good, nice lives and, and people will see that through our lives. Or, or maybe we just take a spiritual vacation. I think the weather sounds nice in, I don't know, Spain. Let's, let's go there right now. But that's not what happens, right? They, they step up. So Paul is encouraged by that. And he wants the Philippians to be encouraged, encouraged by that as well. So we would expect suffering to oppose the gospel and to slow it down, but instead God uses it to advance the gospel. What's the result? More people are boldly speaking God's reconciling plan without fear. Now you may be wondering, what does it look like for God to advance the gospel in my life? That's a good question. After all, you say, I'm not Paul. I mean, I can understand if I was proclaiming the gospel in, in Pekin or in Peoria or in Mackinac or wherever, it is, wherever else it is, and, and I was thrown in jail because of that. You know, it makes sense to me. Like, I'm happy with that, right? I'm, I'm doing God's work there. I can, I can be thrown in jail for that, but, but that's not the situation I'm in. See, my suffering is different. I'm suffering in a hopeless marriage. How's that supposed to be God's plan for advancing the gospel? Maybe you're a very godly person who is really unable to do a lot. You, you want to serve the Lord, but because of health reasons, you can't do much. How is that supposed to be God's plan for advancing the gospel? Maybe you're a, a woman who would make a fantastic mother, but you're struggling with infertility or miscarriage. How is that supposed to advance the gospel? Maybe you had a child or family member that you were very close to and they passed away. Maybe you were let go from a job you worked faithfully for years with, with little notice. 
How are those things supposed to advance the gospel? Well, tough circumstances in the heat of life do not stop or slow down God's advancement of the gospel. I believe the problem is that we have too narrow of a a view on the gospel. Many people think that the gospel, this news about Jesus Christ, is only about God making us, declaring us righteous. It's only about God pulling us off the path to hell and putting us on the road to heaven. But the gospel, salvation, is far greater than that. The gospel is the glorious news that God rescues and redeems unworthy sinners and changes them to be like Jesus Christ. So what is God's purpose for your suffering? How can God advance the gospel through that? Well, that is his purpose, so that he can advance the gospel through it. How? How can it? Because God enables you to respond to your suffering in a way that shows that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to yourself. To live in a way where you are responding rightly. How? By the power of God. You may be afflicted in every way, but by, but by God's power are not crushed. You may be perplexed, but are not driven to despair. You may be persecuted, but not forsaken. And you may be struck down, but you're not destroyed. No matter what, the life of Jesus can be manifested in your body. That is God's advancement of the gospel. Does that sound too good to be true? Some kind of pie in the sky, wishful thinking? Can God really use your particular suffering as his plan for the advancement of the gospel? Yes, he can. Yes, and he does. As I mentioned before, the plan for God's, the pathway for God's reconciliation was through the suffering of Jesus Christ. So if God carries out his redemptive plan through the suffering of Jesus Christ, then he also carries out his redemptive plan through our sufferings as well. Are we willing to trust God and suffer well in this? I'm encouraged by the way that suffering doesn't have to discourage other people. Our suffering can actually encourage others. Not because they're glad that we're suffering, I don't mean that, but because it gives them opportunities that they may not normally have had. How can your suffering motivate and encourage other people? Well, maybe it allows them to serve you by bringing you meals or giving you rides. Maybe they can start serving at the nursing home or in children's ministry because you're not able to. Maybe they could start writing you letters of encouragement. Maybe it allows them to to teach or lead a life group. There are many, many ways in which our suffering can enable, can allow other people opportunities that they wouldn't, or <clears throat> wouldn't normally have, have done. One specific um, way for me is I'm, I'm inspired by those who, who uh, foster or adopt. Children, that is, not animals. Uh, it takes courage and a willingness what is potentially, what potentially could be a long period of suffering to, to give up your comfort and selflessness And this really inspires other people. So thank you for everyone who does that. So suffering is an opportunity, not an obstacle for the gospel to advance. But you know what? So are other people. (laughs) Other people do that too. And that's our second point. We should view difficult people as gospel advancing opportunities. We should view difficult people as gospel advancing opportunities. Now, you are probably tracking with me on the first point. Yes, Josh, I can understand, I can believe that God uses suffering and hard things as opportunities to advance the gospel. But come on here, give me a break. God using difficult people to do that? I don't think so. Well, let's look at verses 15 to 18. So, 
There, Paul divides these people into two groups. He says, he mentions, so, so one group, they preach Christ from envy and rivalry, and they do it to, inf- to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. That's one group. The other group uh, does it from goodwill. They preach Christ from goodwill, and they do it out of love. So we have these two groups right here. So Paul, even though he has these two groups, one of which is opposed to him, one of which actually cares about him and wants to support him, the amazing result that we see in verse 18 is this, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that I rejoice. So Paul is able to rejoice in this because Christ is proclaimed. Well, what do we mean by all this? So that statement there, uh, so let's summarize, sorry, let's summarize for a second what's happening in this section, and then we'll move on to the details of it. So first, Paul is talking about their motives here, the motives of people here, not the gospel message itself. We'll get into that in a minute. Secondly, Roman Christians are really divided about Paul. Some people view Paul as as a very good leader, and they really like him, and they're on his side, but, but not everyone sees him like that. Other people are are really, other Christians even, are really against Paul, and they're looking for ways to undermine him, to to take him down. In fact, they're even rejoicing that he's in jail. So how does Paul make sense out of all that? How can Paul get joy through all that? Well, it's because of the advancement of the gospel. These difficult people do not stop the advancement of the gospel, and it doesn't even stop Paul's joy. How? Well, notice first off that that God can use even wrong motives to advance the gospel. That's right. God can use even wrong motives to advance the gospel. Does it surprise you that not everyone who preaches the gospel has the right motives or does it for the right reasons? I I know you're smart enough to know that. Like, you get that. The guy on TV asking for money so he can buy his jet plane. You realize, like, not everybody's doing this for the right reasons. Now, you would expect in the workplace that many people do have wrong motives to get what they want. They want to climb the ladders of success, and they're willing to step over people and, you know, take all kinds of means to be able to do that. But what about in the church? Do people in the church even do ministry for the wrong motives? The answer is yes. I remember in one church that I was in, a a man came and talked to me, and he said, "I, I want to be a deacon. It's my life's ambition to be a deacon in the church. Why? My daddy was a deacon, and my grandpa was a deacon, so I want to be a deacon. Right motives? No, no. He just wanted to do it for position and power. Now, it's easy to jump on people or to tear into people when we recognize that they have wrong motives. It would have been very easy for Paul to do the same thing right here. He could have just made a train wreck out of them, right? Really torn them apart, but he doesn't. His focus is on the gospel. Even to be fair, our motives can be off at times. I believe it's a good question to ask ourselves right now. What are our motives? What are your motives? What are my motives in in regards to things happening in our church right now? Are we motivated by a sense of justice? Do we want a leader to pay for something they've done against us or someone else? Are we motivated by comfort? Do we want things to happen or not happen simply because it's more comfortable for us? Are we motivated by position or reputation? Is there a ministry or an area that you want more say in so that you can look better? Are you motivated by the need to be right? Is it more important for you to be right than it is to love and serve someone else? I don't doubt that all of us can go off track when it comes to our motives. But even when people are, Paul didn't seek to destroy them. He didn't retaliate back. No, he saw God using them to advance the gospel. 
But we need to explain the difference between wrong motives and a wrong gospel. So let me explain that, and then I'll give you an example. This group of people that Paul is talking about here is preaching the right gospel. These are Christians, but they have the wrong motives, but they're proclaiming the right gospel. Paul is not going soft in the gospel, on the gospel in his old age. He's not backpedaling. He's not saying, okay, everybody, you know, you know all this theology stuff, just throw that out the window. Let's just all love Jesus. That is not what he is doing here. Um, Paul is not saying that God doesn't care about our motives. Like it's not important why we're doing something. That it doesn't matter if we have the wrong motives, just as long as we do the right things. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that even when our motives are wrong, but the gospel is still right, God can use that to magnify Christ. So in other places, uh, Paul really goes after people who are proclaiming the wrong gospel, even if they have the right motives. So remember Galatians 1, verses 7 to 9, Paul says this. He's, he's referring to these, this group in Galatia uh, who is preaching the wrong gospel. He says, but if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we have preached to you, let them be under God's curse. So to those who would preach the wrong gospel, Paul says, let them be under God's curse. That's pretty strong language, right? So Paul is not going soft on the gospel. Now, many of you may have had the experience of this knock on your door. And uh, so you go to the door and you look out and you open it and there's two young men in black suits standing there and they want to share with you uh, this very warm and encouraging message of of what God has done in their life, of, of what they believe and how you can be a part of that. And they endure thousands, probably, of doors slamming in their faces and phones hung up on them. Most of us would be put to shame. We, we, we have one, one door slam on our face. We read like one email that's kind of hard and we're like, oh, let me cry a little bit. And these people are putting up with hundreds or thousands of that. And I don't doubt that they're very, very sincere in what they're trying to do and what they believe. I don't doubt the sincerity of that. But you know what? They have the wrong gospel. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about wrong motives. So Paul rejoices at the preaching of Christ even when there are wrong motives. How can he do this? Well, part of the answer is because God's agenda is the advancement of the gospel, not the advancement of ourselves. So God is concerned with advancing the gospel, not advancing ourselves. So again, Paul is not focused on his own situation. He's not upset because other people are attacking him and tearing him down. He's actually rejoicing. How? Well, well, the more we focus on ourselves, the more difficult it becomes when other people say critical things about us, the harder it is to respond like that. The more focused we are on ourselves, the more difficult it is when our own agendas and priorities are not advanced. Now, as much good as Paul has done, as much good and things he has done to serve the Lord, as strong as his faith is, God is not making much of Paul in this situation. No, God is making much of God. Suffering is hard, in my own life especially, because Josh wants to make more of Josh. And when God does not make more of Josh, well, Josh's flesh does not like that. And I would suspect you would say the same thing. So friends, God's agenda, his primary agenda, is not that you would be advanced and promoted promoted to greatness in life. God is perfectly fine with keeping you a nobody. God's agenda is making much of himself. And that makes sense, and it's right. Why? Because God is worthy. I wonder if you, I wonder if how many of you are here today struggling with this. 
You're wanting to advance your own agendas and priorities and plans more than the Lord's. I wonder how, how many of you here struggle with criticism from others because you want your name proclaimed more than the name of Jesus. Oh, I know it's very, very easy to sit right here and say, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Let's proclaim the Lord's name. It's all about God's agenda. It's all about his plans. I, I totally get that, right? But just wait till we walk out of these doors. That's when the test comes. We will find ourselves saying things like this. Oh, Lord, why do you give me such a child like this? So stubborn and opposed to me. He opposes me at every turn. Can't you see my life would be so much easier, Lord, if you would just give me a child that would get on board with what I want? Oh, Lord, why did you give me such a stubborn spouse? Don't you see that I could be so much more effective with, with one who would help me? Why can't she or he get on board with me? Oh, Lord, why are all these hard people in my church? Why do they always have to insist on their own ways? Wouldn't things be, be so much better off if they would just agree with what I want? Well, friends, God isn't afraid to tell you no. He's not afraid to deny you the most precious and valuable things. Advancing the gospel of our glorious God is infinitely more valuable than advancing our own names and our own dreams. And I wonder how many of you in this room are stuck. You're stuck because God is not advancing you. In fact, it may seem like he's even demoting you. And it's hard. It's hard when you don't see yourself advancing and you look around and it seems like other people are. But can you trust God? Can you believe that his perfect plan doesn't put you at the center of it? I know that the ladies are studying Esther right now. Haman is a great example of someone who cares more about the advancement of himself than he does the advancement of God's plans. He's so convinced that he's going to be the big cheese. So Esther is a book about how God advances his plans, his gospel, despite suffering and despite opponents. So Paul ends this section with rejoicing. How can Paul do this? How, how can he rejoice in everything that he's experiencing? What's well, God's grace that enables us to have joy even when circumstances and people are against us? It's God's grace, right? What do you think it was that motivated Paul so much? How did he make it through these hardships? Just think back of what we talked about. As he wakes up every day, maybe this is another day I get beat. Maybe this is another day I get in a shipwreck. Maybe this is another day when a snake bites my hand. How does he have any joy? How, like, how does he get out of bed knowing that those things might happen? Well, the answer isn't caffeine or coffee. That's not what motivates Paul. The answer is the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul was motivated by God's grace to pursue God's glory. And he could have great joy even in times of intense difficulty because the gospel was being advanced. How will you respond if life-threatening circumstances face you? With fear? With anger? Could you even imagine responding in joy? How could we possibly do this? By God's grace. By remembering that the most important matter is the advancement of the gospel. If we remember this, we can rejoice, even if our circumstances don't seem to be moving forward. Most of us, if you give us enough time, let us talk enough, we'll find something in our lives that we want to complain about. Our goals in life tend to be very materialistic. I doubt if, a, if we went after church and looked at bumper stickers on your car that we'd find anybody that would put it on their car. He who dies with the most toys wins. Probably not on your car. But we can also live, we can easily live our, our lives in a very materialistic, self-centered way. That's not the life that God wants for us. That's not what Paul is saying here. 
I'm thankful for Jesus who did not live his life to advance his own comfort and pleasure. He lived and died to advance the gospel. And the more that we seek to see the gospel, and the more, yeah, the more that we seek to see the gospel advanced in our, rather than our own ideas, the more joy that we will have. So we've been reminded today that when we put our circumstances in God's hands and remember that he is advancing the gospel, that we can rightly view those who would oppose us. We can rightly view our troubles. How do you respond when someone does you wrong? Do you fight back? Do you take them to court? Do you retaliate to hurt them? Do you want to see them taken down? Are you happy when they are? Do you want to see what people get, what's coming to them? Well, I believe that the way we interpret our circumstances and opponents matters. A wrong view of these things will leave us in despair and unthankfulness. God is sovereign over every situation that you and I face. Adversity, not prosperity. Suffering, not painlessness, is how God advances his gospel. Does that seem foolish? Does it seem foolish to you that God would advance his gospel in your life through hard things and hard people? You have a better, better plan for God? Remember the cross where God used what was despised and foolish in the sight of the world to accomplish his redemptive purposes. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Remember that we are like jars of clay, nothing special or exciting in ourselves. But what does God do? He uses unlikely vessels to advance, to carry out his redemptive purposes. Don't expect to see God do much advancing of his kingdom where people are self-sufficient, proud, and power-seeking. Instead, expect, see, expect to see God at work in the places most, where it is most clear that it's God who is doing the work. How then can you have this right perspective on your suffering and on those who would oppose you? Only by the grace of Jesus Christ, which is made available for you today. Let us pray that we all can obtain that grace of Jesus Christ to see these things rightly. Our dear Heavenly Father, we have looked at some very hard things in this text today. I know many in this room are facing very, very difficult things in their life, suffering, hard people, and it is very, very easy for us to wrongly conclude that you are not good, that you are not wise, and that you are not powerful. Lord, it's very easy to conclude that the advancement of the gospel has been stopped. But thank you for this reminder in the life of Paul that that is not the case, that God enables us by his grace to view these things as opportunities. Lord, I pray today that we could all leave knowing with certainty that God is using the things in our life to advance the gospel. And may we seek his grace to trust him in this. In your name we pray, amen. Well, if you're able, would you please stand as we respond to the word and singing about the task that is left unfinished to us to minister the gospel, no matter what we're going through in our life, and to proclaim not only in deed, but also in word, that Jesus Christ is Lord.
us to our knees, a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful needs. We who rejoice to know Thee, renew before Thy throne the Let's end with our benediction from chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Please uh, say that with me. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent.
in order to be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So just to remember as, as you leave of the exit offering and then a question and answer in the chapel. Chad, did you say there's free Chick-fil-A? Oh wait, it's Sunday, sorry. Have a good week. <laughs>